that um, Miss Judy Fuller is going to share the word with us today. Um, in light of David's message last week and the, the exhortation that he gave to mothers of Israel, um, we have a woman sharing the scriptures with us today who fits that description perfectly. I think here today you've got four children and 11 grandchildren. Um, the very talented family, but the most prominent feature of Judy's family kids and grandkids is they all have an interest, a knowledge and an interest in God's love for them. And so what a testimony to have. And um, as Judy comes and shares with us, yeah, she's got that, that recommendation and that experience of raising a family in the fear of the Lord. And um, it's a beautiful thing. And so Judy, we're excited for your message today. Please come on up as and get some microphone here ready. And um, give Judy your special attention. And uh, seen, I've prayed over Judy a lot this week. Do you want to say a quick prayer for her once you've got that set up? And then um, we'll, uh, we'll leave her to it. But thank you for being willing. And we're looking forward to it. Just ask you to bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we'd like to thank you that we have uh, people in our community like Judy. We just pray that you... We'll be with her today. We know that she has spent a lot of time in preparation and prayer for the message that she's about to share with us. Lord, we just pray that she's a vessel for the Holy Spirit this morning, that the message that she has prepared is one that we are ready to hear. And Lord, we just ask that you'll be with us, you'll keep us focused on her words, that we will take home a message that will carry us through the week. We thank you once again for her, her diligence, her place in our community here, and we pray that you'll be with her today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Thank you, Sin, and thank you, Sam. Those of you who were here last week, Sarah, those of you who were here last week will remember that Pastor David described the difficult week that he'd had in very graphic terms. Well, I can tell you that after a late-night phone call the night before he jetted out to the US, I've had a difficult week too, <laughs> for a different reason. It's not easy to be asked to stand in the pulpit of a master preacher, given a topic, and asked to stand up at short notice, especially when he says he's going to be listening to the sermon when he comes back. But I'll do my best, and I believe that we've come here for a blessing today. We've come here to listen to God's voice, and he'll be able to speak to us no matter who the preacher is. It was never God's plan for Israel to have a king. 400 years before today's story takes place, God had brought the people out of bondage in the land of Egypt and formed them into a nation, and he had made a very special covenant with them. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 19, verses 5 to 8. Exodus 19, verses 5 to 8. Now, therefore, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel after he's been up on the mountain and God has given him the words that he wants them to say. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. That's God talking to Moses. So Moses came down 
and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded them, him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Paul confirms that covenant in Acts 13 where he says, I have set you as a light unto the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So these were a very special people chosen by God and this covenant was formed between God and between his people. And at that time, God established a theocracy and the people willingly agreed to this. God himself was to be their leader and he would interact with them in a very personal way. Now to really understand what's going on here, we have to go right back to the dawn of time, immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.15 is a text we all know by heart, we hardly have to turn it up, but it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God was there in the garden having a conversation with the serpent. And he said, I will put hatred for sin in the hearts of my righteous people down through the centuries. I know that you, Satan, will trouble and harass these people. You will bruise them. You will wound them. Some of them may even lose their lives on this earth. But ultimately, a deliverer will come. He'll crush your head and you will ultimately die forever. Satan trembled at these words. That's the moment he knew that he wasn't going to get away with what he'd just done. Right then, the battle lines were drawn and the two protagonists moved into their positions. God said a Messiah would come and Satan was absolutely determined to see that that wasn't going to happen. Mother Eve thought that her firstborn son Abel might be that Messiah. Apparently Satan thought so too because he stirred up such a spirit of hatred in the heart of his brother Cain, that Cain actually killed his brother. Later, Seth was born, and that was when a holy line was established, a line that would carry the torch of truth down through the ages to prepare the way for a covering, coming deliverer. Let's have a look at uh, Genesis 25, uh, verses, um, sorry, Genesis 4, verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. That was when the holy line was established, and that was to continue down through the generations from Seth. And that holy line has been preserved through patriarchs such as Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and 400 years later through Moses. In Patriarchs and Prophets, 
we read, Notwithstanding the prevailing iniquity, there was a line of holy men who, elevated and ennobled by communion with God, lived as in the companionship of heaven. They were men of massive intellect, of wonderful attainments. They had a great and holy mission to develop a character of righteousness, to teach men lessons of godliness, not only to the men of their time, but to future generations. Only a few of the most prominent are mentioned in the scriptures, but all through the ages, God had faithful witnesses, true-hearted worshippers. So that holy line which began with Seth extended down through the generations. Satan's attack was a two-pronged attack. Firstly, he tried to wipe out anyone that he thought might be the Messiah. He succeeded with Abel. He tried it with Joseph. He tried it with Moses. And of course, we know that later on, he tried it with Jesus himself. Through Herod, when Jesus was born, and then a number of times during Jesus' ministry in an effort to stop Jesus going to the cross. He knew that once that sacrifice was made, it was all over for him. But back to our story, that's why uh, when, plan didn't, uh, when plan A didn't work, Satan went to plan B. His other strategy was to corrupt humanity to the point where no righteous family line would be available so that the Messiah could come. Have a look in Ezra 9, verse 2. Ezra 9 and verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hands of the leaders and rulers have been foremost in this trespass. So when Satan couldn't kill anyone that he thought was going to be the Messiah, he decided that he would endeavour to corrupt the, the holy line that was descending down from Seth to the point where there would be no righteous people that the Messiah could come through. That's why God destroyed the earth with a flood. You know, of all the millions of people living on the earth at that time, how many were righteous? Just eight. And God knew that if he didn't intervene, very soon there would be no righteous people on the earth through which a deliverer would come. So that's why the flood came and God started all over again. We know that the flame of faith burned low at times, but God was still in control. 400 years after God miraculously preserved Abraham and his family and his progeny in Egypt, God inaugurated Israel as a nation, charged them with continuing that holy line and telling the surrounding nations that one day a saviour would come from heaven down into this dark world. All this is well and good, except for one thing. Satan wasn't just sitting idly by watching the salvation history unfold, was he? He was doing his best to see that evil was so widespread and so prevalent that God would give up on his plan of salvation 
and leave this rebellious planet to suffer the consequences of our own actions. Pastor David told us clearly why Israel was uh, told to drive out the surrounding nations and destroy the inhabitants so they wouldn't be corrupted by their wickedness. And we've heard the sordid stories of what happened when they didn't. Idolatry, intermarriage with the heathen women, pagan practices which gradually came into the the lives of the children of Israel and became part of their way of life. How Satan must have exalted when he saw what was happening to God's chosen people. And now here they were, clamouring for a king so they could actually be like the other nations. Isn't it incredible? How God must have grieved. How the angels must have wept when they heard this terrible, misguided request. But because God created human beings with the power of choice, he, gave, he granted their wish. In 400 years, Israel had moved from a theocracy to a kingdom. Clearly their experiment, their first experiment with a king didn't work. Although Saul started out with such promise, he quickly developed into a cruel despot, a tyrannical king, unforgiving a despot, until God removed him from the throne and took away the family line from his dynasty. Let's have a look in 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14, and we'll see what actually happened to Saul. 1 Samuel, verses, uh, 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Those are sad verses, aren't they? The last verse in uh, chapter 15 says, And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. But God was still in control and his plan to bring the Redeemer into the world was still on track. Let's turn to chapter 16 in uh, 1 Samuel and continue our story. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing as I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king from among his sons. You know, to us, reading the story after the event, this is the first reference linking Bethlehem 
with David's dynasty and his lineage. The details of the plan of salvation are slowly starting to unfold. Verse 2, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. I think we can perhaps understand Samuel's reluctance, can't we, to go on that mission? Saul actually remained on the throne for many more years after God rejected him, perhaps as long as 15 And although Samuel never visited him again, he watched his gradual descent into madness. And he knew that Saul's character was such that he wouldn't hesitate to kill even a friend whom he thought had turned against him. So his mission that day was a secret mission. It even caught the Bethlehem elders off guard. Seeing the prophet turn up unexpectedly worried them, of course, And they asked, do you come in peace or have we done something wrong? Verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? After reassuring the elders that everything was okay and that he'd merely come to sacrifice, Samuel quietly moved to Jesse's house, virtually taking orders from God as he went along. He didn't know what God was going to do or which of Jesse's sons he was going to anoint. So he was listening to God's voice as he went along. He asked Jesse to bring his sons out to see him one by one so that he could see which one God had chosen to be Israel's next king. You know, it's interesting. Even Samuel the prophet was fooled when he saw the oldest son, Eliab's commanding presence. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 6, So it was when they came that Samuel looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So even the prophet was taken in by the outward appearance of this man. Verse 7 is arguably one of the most important texts or more important texts in the Old Testament, possibly in the whole canon of Scripture. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical statue because I have refused him for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. How relevant that text is for us today. We live in an age where it's all about me and what I look like. Satan has managed to convince us that outward appearances are supremely important. How often we forget that God doesn't care what clothes we wear, the houses we live in, or the cars we drive. He says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
What's important to him is our character, our integrity and our will. These are the things, these characteristics are the things that will ultimately decide our destiny. So God guided Samuel past seven of Jesse's sons until he came to David, the youngest. Verse, let's pick the story up in verse 10. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he went and sent for him and brought him, so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for he is the one, the youngest of Jesse's seven sons. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. David's anointing would seem an inauspicious beginning to his reign. He didn't actually take the throne for another 15 years. And during that time, he had a very fraught relationship with Saul. Alternately embraced, threatened, loved, hated, envied and hunted. Many times he was in danger of losing his life. It would seem that Satan again thought a possible deliverer had arrived. But God was shielding this young man. He had big plans for him. He was preparing him for greatness. He was protecting him, shielding him from Saul's demented rages and slowly transitioning him from shepherd boy to warrior to king. Again, Patriarchs and Prophets tells us, David, in the beauty and vigour of his young manhood, was preparing to take a high position with the noblest of the earth. His opportunities of contemplation and meditation served to enrich him with that wisdom and piety that made him beloved of God and of angels. The shepherd boy proceeded from strength to strength, from knowledge to knowledge, for the Spirit of God was upon him. One day David would stand with Abraham, Joseph and Moses in the Old Testament Hall of Fame. It was during these years of training for David that a stunning event took place that confirmed his uh, appointing, his anointing as a divine appointment and first alerted Israel to the fact that David was indeed favoured by God. The Philistines were an aggressive, warmongering people who had harassed and oppressed the Israelites for 200 years. In the latter part of the book of Judges and virtually all through the first book of Samuel. 
They occupied southwest Palestine between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Today we know that area as the Gaza Strip. Israel simply could not deal with their overwhelming military might. Way back at the Exodus, at the time of the Exodus, you'll remember that God actually diverted the people away from that area controlled by the Philistines, even though it would have been a shorter route, because God said if they face war, they might decide to return to Israel. So he diverted them around a longer route. So the history of of this warlike nation went back a long way. Many times since entering the Promised Land, Israel had fought the five Philistine kings, and there were actually times when God allowed the people to be subservient to the Philistines because of their unfaithfulness to him. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel sets the scene for yet another another battle. Again, the armies of Philistia and Israel faced each other off. This time it was at Sukkot, 17 miles southwest of Jerusalem. But this was a different battle. This time, one side had a distinct advantage. A giant from Gath named Goliath. For 40 days, Goliath had been striding across the mountain ridge, shouting defiant threats and curses across the Valley of Elah, which separated the two armies. Let's look at his challenge, starting in verses 8, going through to verse 11. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of the living God. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. There was a lot riding on this battle. This battle was winner-take-all and servitude promised for the losers. My friends, are you fighting a giant today in your life? A giant of illness or discouragement, family worries, broken relationship, loss of a job, financial insecurity or a sin you can't overcome. A giant that's made you fearful of what the future might hold. If you are, And this is your story. This is a story that absolutely defies belief. A 15-year-old shepherd boy pitted against an experienced soldier who just happened to be 11 feet tall and covered in a coat of armour that weighed nearly 300 pounds. 
the spear was 26 feet long and the iron tip of that spear alone weighed nearly 60 pounds. And what weapons did David have? A sling and a few stones. Try to picture the scene. After discarding Saul's heavy armour, which clanked around his knees at every step, David carefully picks his way down the mountain track and onto the valley floor, stopping only to pick up a few small stones from the brook as he goes. He would have looked completely ridiculous, both to the Philistines and to the Israelites. They must have been embarrassed at his audacious stupidity and wondered just how his life would end. David shouldn't have been at this battle. He was too young to fight. He was only there because he'd come to bring food to his brothers who had joined Saul's fighting forces. Saul should have been the one to take up Goliath's challenge. He was Israel's giant. But in an ultimate act of cowardice, he let a boy do what he was too afraid to do. His guilty conscience had left him fearful and trembling. He knew that God had rejected him and he couldn't take on Goliath in his own strength. But all the time, all this time, God was quietly preparing the one who could. Again, in Patriarchs and Prophets, we read, God was teaching David lessons of trust. As Moses was trained for his work, so the Lord was fitting the son of Jesse to become the guide of his chosen people. When war was declared by Israel against the Philistines, three of the sons of Jesse joined the army under Saul. But David remained at home. After a time, however, he went to visit the camp of Saul. By his father's direction, he was to carry a message and a gift to his older brothers and to learn if they were still in safety and in health. But unknown to Jesse, the youthful shepherd had been entrusted with a higher mission. The armies of Israel were in peril and David had been directed by an angel to save his people. Verses uh, 42 to 50 in that same chapter, let's have a look at how the story unfolds. And when the Philistine looked about him and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carca- your carcass to the I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward, the, uh, ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine, and killed him. The Philistines were routed that day. 30,000 were slain, and the Israelites achieved a great victory. No one doubted that this was a supernatural battle. David was as courageous as Saul was cowardly. God didn't need a tall, handsome warrior to do his work. He just needed a young man who was willing to trust him completely. And so it is with us. We can't fight the giant in our own strength, but we do have available the same armour that David put on, the name of the Lord of hosts. All he asks of us is that we commit ourselves to him and, like David, be willing to trust him completely. David's story is an amazing story. David committed some of the gravest sins that have ever been recorded in Scripture, worse perhaps even than those of Saul. Yet Saul was rejected And David was called a man after God's own heart. He became part of the holy line that was to bring the Messiah into the world. Ruth and Boaz were his great-grandparents. Messiah would come through his lineage. What made the difference? We'll learn more about the contrast between the characters of Saul and David as we follow David's story in the weeks to come. You know, if we could draw the curtains back on this tumultuous time in Israel's history, we would see that there was a galactic battle going on. And we know that often Satan seemed to be winning. But through it all, God was still in control slowly moving forward his majestic plan of salvation, overriding in the affairs of men despite the apostasy and rebellion of his chosen people. That war is still raging today in our world and in our hearts. 
but praise God, we know that God is still in control. The Deliverer has come. Today we are his chosen people. Our salvation is assured if we accept Jesus' sacrifice and apply it to our lives. May God bless us today, all of us, as we keep our eyes fixed on him. Oh Lord, we can't fight the giant on our own. We've tried so many times and we've failed. But we can achieve success, Lord, if we just trust you completely, put our lives in your hands and just let you fight the battles for us. Lord, we pray that each of us will commit ourselves to you and do this from this day on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.